I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. The year is 1958. The album, The Best of Sellers. The artist, Peter Sellers. My guest this week is actor, voice of the Daleks and the Cybermen, and much more, Nicholas Briggs. Thank you so much for doing the show. Pleasure. It's lovely to be here. Don't quite know what to expect, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. No one ever does, and neither do I. Really, that's I'm a terrible host like that. I I, I can't remember how my own show goes. So I just I know the feeling. You know, uh, I do the Benji and Nick show as well as the Big Finish podcast. So yeah, there's a, a good deal of uh, chaos in there. Now you uh, you're born a few years after this record comes out, but yes. I think it's it's pretty obvious that uh everybody i've i've interviewed is like yeah now we listen to the goons on repeats etc did you was that part of your experience as a kid i did listen to the goons a bit um but this record was bought for me because it's a 1970 something reissue and funnily enough i'm just looking at the sleeve again i can't see any it says re-released by popular demands and i can't see any record of the actual date of the re-release mm, no okay. just nowhere it's just they've just reprinted everything i think from i don't know it's got huh. also got on the back it's got the you know the best of bernard cribbins the frost report on britain the best mm -hmm. of rambling Sid Rumpo. <laughs> More common wise, bring you sunshine. Yes. Um, yeah, so, but this was bought for me by my brother. My brother is nine years older than me. Okay. That's always the, the next thing I say about him, which he loves, of course. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, we, so he was the earlier generation. And some point when I was a teenager, he decided to educate me in proper comedy and yeah. bought me this. And I remember thinking, what's that? I knew who Peter Sellers was. And I put it on and it was, I listened to it over and over again to kind of try and work out what it was and what was meant to be funny. And in the process, I started to find it extremely amusing. And now I freely, I realise I freely quote it throughout my life and no one knows what I'm talking about. Of course. I mean, that's, yeah. that's going to happen. Yeah. I feel like if you find sort of um, uh, Fairweather Sellers fans, which, you know, I, I would probably count myself among them, they're going to yeah, quote yeah. certain things that everybody else knows. They're going to either, it's going to be a Pink Panther movie or it's going to maybe be a Goons something or other. Yeah. Uh, but this is very specific. This is a thing it that is. I knew existed even and had only heard it once you asked to talk about it. So, um I so, think it was originally issued as an EP, wasn't it? Like a it sort of like seven, it, yeah. seven, yeah. And then they've just put it on a, a an LP, and it's quite, it's quite short for an LP, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the sketch, well, I I don't I hasten to even call them sketches because they're all, for the most part, one person. Although, are there are there any bits where there are? Where, is is he everybody? He's absolutely. He, everybody, I think right? he's everybody. I think for years I didn't know that, mm -hmm. and then after I listened to it about fifty eight times, <laughs> I suddenly thought I. Th I think he's playing everybody in this because he there's some clever editing, you know, yeah. and he interrupts himself. Yes. Especially the uh, what's the one uh, was it called? We need the money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when when um, the uh, uh, American uh, interviewer is interviewing this Lord of the Manor, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of absolutely, and he's like, oh, of course you you know, and talking over each other nonsense, uh -huh. and uh, and then you know because he's claiming that everything available at his stately home is it's all produced here, it's all uh, local produce, and then you have this person come and go, oh, excuse me, sir, the, the, those cabbages from. Uh, Covent Garden please go away you know the man's a fool a fool <laughs> I you know I made a note as I was listening to that one that he's the only voice actor 
you know, off the top of my head, or at least from his generation, whose voices don't all sound like they're coming from the same face, which is yes. hard to do. We have a certain face shape. Our voices are going to sound a certain way. But he did, I, think I don't he, know. What he sort of re-sculpts his mouth, doesn't he? I remember John Pertwee used to talk about that. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, to do a different voice, you have to sort of change right. the shape of your mouth and sort of, I've done voices where I put my finger in my throat so oh, wow. suddenly you get that sort of strange tone like that and you you know you alter the, the tonal quality of your voice I don't know what Peter Sellers was doing also I think he's quite brazen in that he some of the he doesn't care that some of the voices do sound a bit similar but what he does has sure. come at them with a different intention and the intention mm-hmm. fools you it reminds me, actually, of when I used to work for a terrible publishing company years ago, and there were only three of us in this small room. And my job, as the lowest of the low, was to answer the phone. But my job was also uh, to do many other things, one of which was the display advertising department, and I'd have to take all the orders for the adverts. But they insisted that I didn't just go, oh, yeah, that's me. I had to, what I had to do was say, uh, good morning, name of the company. And then they said, oh, display advertising. I say, just one moment, please display advertising and no one ever said hold on you're the same guy it's because i came at it with a different intention (laughs) you know people just believed i was someone else (laughs) Uh, you know that energy does change things it can really convince somebody you're not wrong i I mean because there are a couple voices even on this record that are not quote-unquote are not voices he did on the goons but are similar enough to voices he did on the goons so you're right you're right i guess i just went along with it yeah Especially the guy who sings the, what's that song? I have to keep referring because I just sort of know. My, uh, uh, yes, All the Things You Are, where the guy's yes. singing in the bathroom. You are the sad. And it gets very goonish at the end, doesn't he, when it's revealed oh, yeah. he's, he's in the bathroom and you hear that. Yeah, Dad, have you finished in there yet? And he's going, oh, cool, you can't even get a shaving piece in this house. And he's going, you are such a darkness. And it gets very goonish then, doesn't it? Uh, and I think the only gag of that is it starts off with this very, if you didn't think about it, it's a very bathroom sounding reverb. And then it's a sweet <laughs> little song of this tiny old man that you're picturing. And then all of a sudden, that's how it's in. It's it's a simple joke. The orchestra the comes in. The brilliant thing, it's you know, so Ron good. Goodwin does the music with this. Ron Goodwin, who did loads of big movie scores. And it's mm-hmm. a proper huge orchestra, isn't it? The yeah. full string section and everything. It's The music throughout this album is amazing. Oh, I yeah. Think. I mean, that, that was not again i wasn't expecting that I, I guess i don't know what i was expecting i don't think i was expecting any music but it's beautiful it is yeah. it's it kind of ups at a level there are a few american uh uh comedy acts and definitely some english comedy acts that i i can i've heard over the years where it's like that little extra bit that little extra bit of detail makes it sound like a bigger album than it probably was because I suppose that was the only way they knew of doing it. If they yeah. had music, they think either we just use a bit of stock music, but we're we're in the studio, we know musicians, so yeah. you, if you need music, you hire an orchestra, don't you? You get the band in. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do you think this, this was just made for records, wasn't it? This wasn't a radio right. broadcast that was... So yeah. They decided to make an album of Peter Sellers' sketches. You know, that's, weird, that's that I would, Im- I would A, imagine so, but B... I, I, I'm realizing I've never asked any of my English guests before. Um, I didn't grow up around this, but in America, every 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 different era uh, and in different locations, there are strictly uh, they don't exist anymore. But there were st- some strictly comedy radio stations. Has that right. ever been a thing in England? 
that no, you know of? No, there haven't so. been comedy radio stations. No, I mean, you know, uh, Radio 4, uh, mm-hmm. which had a lot of comedy on it, and also Radio 2 as well. I remember Sunday afternoons on Radio 2 when I was a kid. Mm. There was always a lot of comedy around um uh, you know lunchtime I, you know i'm sorry i haven't a clue and mm-hmm. um oh god goodness me i can't remember the name do no no i can't remember the name of it but it had tim brooke taylor and uh-huh. and john cleese in it and they used to do things like sends send ups of star trek i remember one oh, of the god. jokes from that was when they said um was it so uh scotty take the turbo lift down to engineering and he says but captain it's awful heavy and the idea that Scotty's going to carry the lift all the way down to anyway, it was hilarious at the time, <laughs> you know. And I think that's why, I, you know, I think that I, maybe I have asked someone before, and then and then they pointed out, no, we still have comedy on the radio here because we don't in America. It's really oh, not right, a thing. Yeah, we still do. Yeah, it is and a big thing here still. I mean, like if it wasn't for the radio, you know, I'm sure. Well, I won't say we wouldn't have Stephen Fry, but Stephen Fry's got a whole chunk of his career on radio that I still haven't even heard, and I'm a massive fan yeah. of his. There's there are people who, if you want to dig into all their stuff, you've got to. Totally, um, and also a lot of our TV comedy starts on radio in this sure. country. Still, that still happens. Yeah, and one of my uh, one of the great disappointments in my life is that a brilliant um, radio comedy that I directed and uh, did the music and sound design for that was written by the fantastic Graham Duff. Have you ever heard of Graham Duff? The name he, I know, but yeah, I can't say that I know who he is. He's done he's done all sorts of stuff. He did a, a TV series with Johnny Vegas called Ideal uh-huh. uh, about about a drug dealer, basically. Um, uh, and he wrote this thing called Nebulous, which mm-hmm. um, was uh, a sort of homage, comedy homage to Doctor Who and Quatermass and any other naffold science fiction you could think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starred Mark Gatiss and it had uh-huh. Graham Crowden in it and uh, Rosie Cavaliero, who's done an awful mm-hmm. lot recently. And uh, it also had Steve Coogan guest appearing in it for one episode and I directed three six-part series of that and there was real talk of it being made into television but so much of it actually the the strength of it was that it was radio in that Mm. there was you know there was a character it was all set um poke post-apocalyptic post a thing called the withering <laughs> where where something terrible had happened and all the pigeons were destroyed or something or uh, where <laughs> professor quatermass sorry no i sorry i mean professor nebulous had uh, attempted to uh, move the isle of Wight one centimeter to the left or something and there was a character uh, a sort of mutant character called harry and the joke about harry was that they couldn't bear to look at him and he sort of had a hover chair and he was so ghastly because he'd been horribly mutated and he just spoke like this all the time <laughs> um and one of his gags was you know they'd say to him sort of innocuous phrases like um well don't worry harry put your best foot forward unfortunately i do not have the luxury of a foot <laughs> you know and every episode he detailed these horrible disfigurements and so you just thought well what on earth can harry look like and of course the beauty of it was that you never saw so how would you do that on television i suggested i said the only way you can do it is like a dalek point of view when harry comes on you just see from harry's point of view which is also distorted yes. and weird and you just see people looking askance at him rather appalled but you never never see what harry looks like mm-hmm. <laughs> i love that so much do, do you okay so what's your experience with peter sellers then beyond this record like what what did you know of him before and then i'm assuming you would continue to follow his work after yeah i mean bizarrely i'm not what you'd call a sort of mad peter sellers fan i have mm-hmm. huge respect for his work i mean i suppose i would have 
uh, I would have known him from the Pink Panther mm-hmm. as a teenager. And especially, uh, bizarrely, the best Pink Panther film is A Shot in the Dark, which yeah. doesn't feature the Pink Panther. So it's not a P- Pink Panther film. It's an Inspector Clouseau film, <laughs> sure, isn't it? Sure, yeah. Uh, and uh, am I, do you know whether A Shot in the Dark came before or after the Pink Panther? Here's the thing. I keep, I forget this every time and I don't know why. It's some weird, uh, let's see here. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to do it Because right uh, there are two mm-hmm. theories I have in my head. One, that mm-hmm. they did that first and then thought, let's make a star-studded one. Right, uh, right. Or that they did the Pink Panther and then thought, oh, well, the big thing in it was Cluzo. So let's do a Cluzo film. Right. What, what does it say on, on the interweb? Here. So it Atron. was 1964. <laughs> it was What's the that? second. So the first it was, was the, the Pink second. Panther, but that was, uh, wait, was that, it was still him, wasn't it? Was it? Oh, yeah. yeah, it was Peter Sellers, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was and Pink Panther first and Shot in the Dark. And then, and then uh, all the other films were about the had Pink Panther in the title. I, I guess a shot in the dark didn't do quite so well because it wasn't Pink right. Panther branded. Right. But, but it is the best film in my very humble opinion it's the um, one that my mom always points to she's like no that's the one to watch i'm like oh okay. yeah. yeah it's it's just funnier mm-hmm. you know um and it's got all the best clueso moments in it and it the funny thing is it looks like an older movie to me mm-hmm. it looks more old-fashioned that the pink panther has got a real 60s feel to it whereas sure. a shot in the dark feels like a 50s film to me Anyway. Yeah, you know that's fair. No, that's that's a fair analysis. Uh, it was. I'm assuming it was also directed by. Um, my brain is fried. And I forgot. Yeah, his him. Name. I know who you mean. You know, yeah, <laughs> Blake Edwards. Blake uh, Edwards. Yeah, Babu. I'm assuming it's also. You know, there's a weird exception that I always forget about that is between A Shot in the Dark and Return of the Pink Panther, and it's called Inspector Clouseau, and it, but it stars Alan Arkin as Clouseau. <laughs> Which is a yeah. I love Alan Arkin, but it's a weird choice. It's a very yeah. Weird that choice. is a weird choice, isn't it? Yeah, Alan Arkin's great, but I've not I've never seen that film because it feels like a blasphemy to me. Sure. Not to not to <laughs> Peter Sellers. What else did I know Peter Sellers from? I mean, he was just a massive, and I suppose it was the same in the states, but in mm-hmm. the UK, he was just everyone knew Peter Sellers's name. He yeah. was always in the news. He was he was just an important person. Mm-hmm. You know, he got up to no good with. Um, Brit Eklund and all that oh, sort yeah. of stuff. Sure. Uh, so we, yeah, and he was in all those classic, um, you know, black and white movies. I'm all right, Jack, and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, and he, he's in the, he's in the Lady Killers as well, isn't he? I think, I think he's so. in that. Yeah. So he was just sort of ever present in British culture. So when I mean, there were, when my brother gave me that record, I didn't take it out of the wrapper and say, "Well, who's this?" I just sure. thought, "Oh, yeah, well, that's Peter Sellers. That's fine. Yeah, I know that." You know. Um, but, but it, it seems is, like um, you didn't know what to expect, though. Same as I didn't. It seems like you weren't sure. What yeah, the no, was that's right. Be. And I remember thinking, you know, looking at the names of the writers. It says, you know, Monkhouse, which I presume is Bob Monkhouse, mm-hmm. who was famous on British television for being a quiz show host and comedian, and also okay. latterly an actor. Now, sadly, no longer with us. And also uh, Muir and Norden, Frank Muir, who was f- famous for being on a show called Call My Bluff here, mm-hmm. and. Norden is presumably Dennis Norden, who again in Britain was famous for a show, a uh, kind of um, what would you call it, a blooper show called "It's All Right on It'll Be All Right on the Night," mm. 
Okay. And he used to sit there and go, well, ladies and gentlemen, this is what we call a cock up, you know. And it's just, <laughs> it was just the same, all these clips of actors fluffing their lines that for two or three series was quite amusing. And then, you know, when it got to It'll Be All Right on the Night 94 or whatever, <laughs> just thought, oh, shut up. I'm fed up of seeing actors falling over or not remembering their lines. It's just, it's actually not funny anymore. But yeah, so, I mean, these people were, were big uh, figures in the comedy scene. So, Interesting, Sellers is credited with writing some of them. Mm-hmm. One of my favourite little jokes from Balaam, Ga- Balaam, Gateway to the South, is when the uh, someone who puts makes the holes in toothbrushes, that, that's their job, and they speak like this, and um, said, the holes are inserted manually or once a year. Uh, and so whenever anyone says manually to me, I say, or once a year. <laughs> And they look at me like, no, I said manually, not annually. I think that's the joke, though. But nobody knows it. So why do I have this like this obsessive tick where I have to say that joke? I mean, that is a, uh, for lack of a better word, that's a nerd thing to do. That is a thing that we do when we latch on to. I am a nerd. I mean, that's what that's what American kids who latched on to Python, you know, obviously like a half a generation later than anybody in England did. Oh, boy. Boy, and for me, a couple generations later, but still, like, boy, oh, boy. Yep, that's... You go into a cycle of quoting, don't you? You have to. You have I still to. do it. My co-host on the Benji and Nick show, Benji, who's, you know, I think in his late 20s. Mm-hmm. So, and here I am on the verge of being 60, 60 years old. <laughs> and, you know, and we, and we, he only likes old stuff. So he starts quoting Python. I start quoting it back at him. Mm-hmm. It is one of those things, and it's one of the things that bores people to death about Monty Python, isn't it? That people <laughs> people can quote it. I was so close to nominating a Monty Python record. I guess you've yeah. had a lot of that. But I found that I don't actually have any of them. Really? I used to just borrow other people's or they tape it for me. <laughs> yeah, you know? okay. That's but otherwise, I would have picked one of the uh, the two movie ones because... You know, to do an album of your movie, but then add so much extra to it as they did. I always felt like the Pythons went, you know, they were never satisfied with just regurgitating something, even Mm -hmm. the contractual obligation album. You know, Mm -hmm. it was all, they would always go that extra mile. I remember there was, you know, those records that were sort of floppy ones. Do you remember those? What Mm -hmm. do they call? What do they call them? Flexi disc, that's it, floppy, yeah. that's not right. I was trying to explain it to someone much younger than me before this podcast. Uh-huh. Going, no, what do you mean? Flexi disc. And they did a flexi disc, didn't they, for New Musical Express? Oh. Uh, where they put the election okay. night special sketch on it and Michael Palin did all the intros and sort of saying things like, New Musical Express, the pop paper you can really wrap things up in, regurgitated curry, old spaniels, you know, and they just <laughs> did all that special stuff just for yeah. a New Musical Express oh. flexi-disc. I'm so pleased I've learned that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they still make them. You can still get them made. They're only wow. made in the Czech Republic, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Um, just about. It's the only place you can get them. Uh, I. How many you know, times can you play a flexi disc? Not I many. Mean, I've I've w- never worn one out, but that doesn't mean wow. that they can't be. They're so thin. You you they must, get so crackly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I've got I've got a couple that I've bought that were in extreme disrepair. We'll never play properly, but I just bought them to have them. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny as we talk about Python, I, I was, I was really convinced last speaking of flexi disc, it looks like a flexi disc last night. Sorry. I don't normally do like current events in, in records, but Eric Idle tweeted, um, a prop from the Ruddles film that was yeah. a triangular record. I didn't remember that prop from the film, but no. I, I look at it. I'm like, 
oh god i want that so desperately and i and i had a tweet at him and i've been trying to get him on for years as you can imagine said hey yeah love to talk to you talk about you talk to you on the podcast about it ask andre jackman producer of all the python albums i'm not a creep and then he just responds <laughs> yeah but i am i'm like damn it tried so hard i tried what a brilliant response that's, yep, that kills perfect. you dead doesn't it it does yeah. it's like well i can't say anything i don't even have a good joke response good night and have a good day sir holy cow can and you know and uh, uh. yeah Holy cow. Uh, Wouldn't that be, have been brilliant? Sorry, I didn't mean to rub it in, but yeah, <laughs> to have had Eric Idle on. One Fantastic. Well, I will say, though, speaking of the Python albums, though, and of Andre Jackman, like he, do you know he was 17 when he started producing the Python albums? Wow. What in his a shed, dream. In his, wow. in his mother's well, shed. Well, here I am in, in a shed here. Yeah. Quite so, a luxurious you know. one. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's a weird. Uh, that's a weird story he's got, and he's a nice, humble man, but uh, he's made some very weird, brilliant stuff, including Isn't stuff that, that we both obsessed over. What and does I, he do now? Same. I mean, he, he produces mostly movie. Uh, uh, he does uh, sound engineering for and, and mixing for movies, mostly a lot of Python projects, but right. not just that. Uh, but every time I email him, he's like, sorry, I can't do it right now. Working on Terry's next movie. I'm like, well, tell Terry I say hi. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> holy cow, it's just crazy, the stuff that that man works on. Yeah, um, a legend. Right? Right? And, you know, he's maybe Neil Innes is, is the, the other Python, but I, I, I'd tag him on as an extra, an extra yeah. Python. Just given as much. See, because I, I don't know how you feel. Uh, well, how old were you when you would have been a, a young man when the Python show was on? Pretty young. I was very young. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember it was sort of something. It used to be on about nine twenty-five in the evening, and it felt too late for me to be watching something. But I remember uh -huh. quite often there were circumstances where my parents, especially on a summer's evening, were out mm -hmm. or in the garden or something, and I'd sneakily watch Monty Python <laughs> because I had I had an inkling that it was naughty, and I remember. I remember the first time I really laughed uncontrollably at Monty Python, where it was a ridiculous sketch that no one particularly remembers as a good sketch, which was the encyclopedia salesman sketch. Mm -hmm. And um, and and there's the thing where the, the guy goes in and he goes, burglar, burglar. And someone says, what, what, what do you want? He says, I just want to come in and uh, ransack your house. Uh, still, And they say... You're not an encyclopedia salesman. No, no, just want to rob you. Okay, then he's like, mind you, have you ever thought of the uh, encyclopedia? You know, and he, the idea is that people would rather be burgled than have an encyclopedia salesman in the house. And then you see bodies falling down the side of a building with a sort of drum roll. Brr, boom, brr, boom. And then you cut to uh, Michael Palin and says, that was two unsuccessful encyclopedia salesmen. And then they show another one falling. And he said, uh, what is it? That was a lot of fun and we all had a jolly good laugh. Now, now, me saying that to you now is not funny, but there's something the way Michael Palin said that line, and we all had a jolly good laugh. I just, I remember aching. I was so, I, I was crying and laughing at the same time. I think my parents thought something very weird had happened to me. And from that moment on, really, I was devoted to Monty Python wherever and whenever and however I could find it, you know. That's fair. You know, the, uh, I, I, people... Uh, this is controversial, but I like the records more. I love the show, but I like the records more. And I, it might just be because I like to listen to the range of voices. I like the 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 audio mixing. The mixing is a big part of it for me for some reason. I think you're right to like the records more, actually, because they are like... Um, a, a, it feels like 
and it's possibly wrong, but it feels like there's far more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They've really boiled down to the real funny in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the TV series, when you look back at it, there are a lot of things that just fall flat or go awry. Sure. Whereas I think when it comes to the records, because they only had, what, I don't know, was it 23 minutes or something per side? I think yeah. they really had to work hard on, on what was going to work. Yeah. And I think some of their best stuff is, is the little bits and pieces they put around Holy Grail and Life of Brian on the record. You know, that mm-hmm. introduction by, oh. uh, you, know, you know, the executive version and then the <laughs> mentioning of the swear words and saying, but since they only appear in this introduction, you're well past them now, which is a, an act of genius, isn't it? To sort of yeah. warn people about offensive stuff, but the offensive stuff is only what you're saying at that moment, you know. It reminded me of me working at um, Radio 4 Extra, which I'm still going to do in spite of a year of lockdown, presenting there when we have to flag up inappropriate um, content. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a BBC, a quite sensible BBC directive that says, you know, when you flag it up, you mustn't make it sound like that's an even bigger reason for listening you know you you know you when you use the phrase sexual swear words you mustn't say it with any kind of glee you know what I mean (laughs) sexual swear words there's sexual swear words in this keep listening (laughs) you've got to make it sound like it's a bad thing (laughs) yeah 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 oh my goodness that's remarkable uh, what I mean, how, how does it feel to have so much of your career be on? Because again, radio is still a thing, and it's still important mm. in England, and I I appreciate that and love that. How does it feel to be on that same medium that gave us Peter Sellers and gave us so many other people? Well, yeah, it's really it's really lovely. I mean, I I so many of my opportunities in life have happened since I was about forty really because of Russell T Davis who you know mm. brought Doctor Who back yeah. having faith in me and getting me to do the voice of the Daleks so um I got the gig on Radio 4 Extra because I was doing something for the proms at the Albert Hall they were doing a, a kids TV music prom thing and they did Doctor Who in there mm-hmm. and they thought wouldn't it be fun to get the Dalek in so I went and did that that's a whole other story um, and uh, because uh, the proms are traditionally broadcast on Radio 3 which is the ultra intellectual music classical music channel on mm-hmm. radio in this country uh, I was asked to go into Radio 3 to do a trailer for the Doctor Who part of the prom. Mm-hmm. And I went in there and we were doing Dalek voices and silly announcements and stuff. And I was I was on form that day. I was having a lot of fun and messing around with the technicians and the producer and making quips and things. And, you know, uh, and then the guy there who I don't remember him from from being there in fact i barely remember him now uh he then became like the i don't know the content producer or presentation producer for what was then radio 7 which became radio 4 extra um and they were looking for someone to present the sci-fi segment of radio 4 extra which is called the seventh dimension Mm -hmm. because it was radio 7 and uh, they had just been using their daily announcer, but they had this idea that we should get specific announcers for specific segments who have some kind of connection to it. And he just said, oh, because he, he was required as the new head of content or whatever his job was to have a, a new idea. And I was I was hit. 
I was his new idea. So you could say, I've met the guy who does the voice of the Daleks and everyone knows him as a sci-fi person and he's really funny and he'd be really great as a presenter. So I, that's how I got that job, wow. basically. You would have thought, because the person doing his job before him was a mate of mine and you would have thought he'd got me the job, but because he was a mate of mine, I don't think he felt he could suggest me for it. So yeah, I got, I got the job because of that and uh, have been doing it ever since. For a few years, I... I was the only presenter on, on The Seventh Dimension, but now I share it with... I suggested Toby Haydog to help out, and now there's three other people or something, and we do it in cycles. But, yeah, it it felt, um, you know, just going into Broadcasting House, and I was given a, a pass with my mm-hmm. photograph on to go in there. Uh, I was going in every week or every two weeks. And, to you know, and have you ever been in Broadcasting House no. in London? No. It's just this amazing old building, you know, mm-hmm. with stairs and, uh, and you know, very, very tall. And to go up to the fourth floor and everything and, and to go in, you know, to sign in and all that. I just thought, I felt like, wow, you know, this is this is where legends were made yeah. in, in broadcasting and, you know. Of course, I was just going in there doing the the intros for shows. So I wasn't sort of creating Still. great art, but it, oh, yeah, but it's great, though. it did feel lovely, and it continues to do so. Actually, I mean, even though I'm going to be doing it remotely now right. in that ramshackle thing you can see be- behind me, <laughs> I'll be recording in that for Radio Four Extra. <laughs> I, you know, it's making me think, and I'm sorry uh, to to keep getting us off of Peter Sellers, but we don't have mm. that. We do not have a place you could go to if you wanted a radio pilgrimage in the u.s which is too bad because radio is massive we're just so widespread and so far spread out i think maybe you could go to 30 rockefeller center in new york which is now known for more tv because that's where they did all the radio for nbc back in the day but you know we had three main channels i would assume there's no yeah that's the only place i can think of that and it's not it's not a radio place still it's not how you'd think of it no it's too bad well i mean you know it's all that way in this country because uh, mm-hmm. some some people in america would say we're just a bunch of communists here but it's because we have an important state broadcaster mm-hmm. you know but we our view of the state is not that this well certainly my view of the state is not as this awful thing that crushes us it's us we right. we are the states we we dictate who runs it we vote for them every whatever years you know mm-hmm. uh, and so so that's why we have that unified experience which is which is changing now mm-hmm. much more but it's because yeah you know our television came from the states really yeah you know yeah. and that's and that's where our radio had come from before and the um commercialization of it is is a latter development which yeah. is very much in full swing now sure. um, but for america everything was commercial 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 so it's going to be fragmented into lots of different things there are good and bad things about both I suppose it means you lose the tradition. You know, the easiest way to make radio is to just take records that are made and pump them out and get some well-meaning chap or woman to talk nonsense into a microphone in between. Mm -hmm. And then that's easy. It's fairly cheap. And people listen to it because everyone who doesn't like listening to music, you know, when people are working, they you know, and it's a cheap and easy way to listen to music. The expensive stuff is comedy and drama, yeah, isn't it? That you have to pay lots of people for their time and their expertise, mm-hmm. the music, the writing, all that kind of stuff, yeah. So that's why it's gone that way in the States, because if you're governed by commercial concerns, you don't do 
you don't do comedy. You don't do drama. Right. It's too expensive, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just let somebody sit in a booth. Or maybe not. Maybe you've already pre-recorded everything that ever is going to be said on your station. Because we've got a few of those here, too, where there's nobody really <laughs> doing the ads even. Wow. It's just They've already recorded it. And it's just it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, okay. So I feel like I have distracted us a little bit. And I, I yeah. this record is important to you. And I, <laughs> I get us off the rails a lot. So... We don't have to go down track by track at all, but let's talk about your favorite tracks or your favorite moments from the mm. record. Gosh, it's really, uh, I mean, I really like the first track, which is the Trumpet Volunteer, which mm-hmm. is um, uh, the uh, the posh interviewer talking to the, 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 the young pop star. And he sings, here, Mr. Iron, and he calls him Mr. Iron. So I imagine that that's a send up of Tommy Steele. You see, mm. he was a big mm-hmm. pop star then, Steele, Iron. Mm-hmm. I, that's... And he's just said, yeah, well, he's, uh, we're going... Uh, and basically his idea is he's using out-of-copyright music. It, you know, he said, I believe you're going into the classics. Well, they're out-of-copyright, aren't they? You know, it's that <laughs> complete commercial thing. And, and you have this daft sort of 50s rock version of the Trumpet Voluntary called the Trumpet Volunteer. And that's... But what... I mean, the, the music track at the end of it is impeccable, mm-hmm. beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Um but the interview is fantastic. As I say, it took me a long time to realise it was just Peter Sellers doing it, mm-hmm. and I don't think I, I don't think there's any editing overlapping. I think it's just Peter Sellers swapping from one character to the next. I don't I think, think he actually right. interrupts himself, uh, and though and it's just you wonder how much of it was completely scripted because particularly. Well, it just really sounds like they're improvising. It does, yeah. Or he's improvising. Right. You know? <laughs> Sorry, see, I believe, yeah. You see, but I even like uh, the Auntie Rotter. The, I am just going to go through them all. Auntie That's Rotter, yeah. which is the, you know, the idea that there's a children's program. And it's so, you could just never, you could never even play this now, could you? It's just. Probably not. She's basically instructing children to murder her par- their parents and grandparents, then steal all their money and send it to her. You know, says, do you see daddy coming down the path? Wouldn't it be nice to have two daddies? And the idea is that they split him down the middle with an axe. I mean, it's just... It's just obscene, isn't it? So that's psychosis. All the things you are, we've spoken about with the, the little man in the shave. And we need the money. I've spoken about that as well with the Earl. He, that also uh, ends up with a, a musical number from the Earl. Oh, yeah. Doing, doing, yeah, that's brilliant. I'm so ashamed. It's the idea that obviously uh, uh, every generation thinks the younger generation are just doing things too young, too young. And the idea that he's... He's nine years old and he's completely burnt out as a pop star. <laughs> I haven't had a record in the top 20 pops. My discs are slipping. That one. Uh, the party political speech is oh. something that people have sent up politicians about. It's basically a speech that means nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, the matters that we are now taking, you know, and it just none of it. And you keep thinking, get to the point and you hear all this. It's like it's it's set in the House of Commons. You hear all this yeah, yeah, in the background, you know, uh-huh. Ballam Gateway to the South is the classic one that everyone used to know about, but, mm-hmm. but not anymore. You know, we brought that up on this show before, and I'm, I'm now not sure why, because we've not discussed a Peter Sellers record before. Maybe somebody just brought it off offhand, but I know that we've talked about it on the show before. Malham, gateway to the south. Um, and the, the last one, suddenly it's folk song, mm-hmm. is uh, a good bit of uh, inter-UK 
xenophobia, mm-hmm. <laughs> where it's really the English uh, ca- um, characterizing anyone who isn't English as being drunk and disorderly or both, mm-hmm. really, isn't it? You know, so they this guy talking about folk music and giving examples of it in its various native settings. And then you hear the, like the, the Scottish folk singer, he said it's played... Uh, on the, it's it's a folk music. It's played on the mouth, uh, and and uh, you've got this Scottish guy who's clearly just some drunk man in the street, just going, uh, and then suddenly just gets run over, doesn't he? He's and you say, and then the thing, another one that I'm always quoting completely out of context, and no one ever understands, is when they have the Irish. Um, a folk song mm-hmm. uh, and and it's this beautiful Irish folk music Pat O'Shaughnessy and his men of Shamrock and it's and it's playing away and they're going ah you feel it from your heart there as it's playing it's going on and then and you hear all the various musicians all played by Peter Sellers chatting to each other and then one of them says hey buddy were you playing a bomb note there he said, what, what you said, I'd not played it. And they, of course, again, the English xenophobic old-fashioned view of Irish people, that uh-huh. they're drunk and rowdy. So they end up having a massive fight where you hear <laughs> musical instruments crashing and bashing. All that. It is hilarious. But again, you know, yeah. the, the value system in play uh, in this is, is, of course, reprehensible. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that, was that a bomb note there? I often say that to people when they play me a bit of music. I said, was that a bomb note there? And they, they just look at me. And I think, I don't even know I'm quoting it with this offensive, rubbish Irish accent. I'd like to apologise to all Irish people listening. I gotta say, for 1958, to only really have one track that smacks of utter that's, xenophobia, not, not a bad track record, as Well, it given Peter Sellers', Sellers records, uh, you know, blackface and being an Indian. Sure. Yeah, sure. You know, there's none of that on here, thankfully. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's that that becomes the issue with talking about old records. In a couple yes. years ago, I because th- I've got an okay sized record collection of comedy records specifically, and I tried to listen to one a day and um, failed like a third of the way through because most comedy records aren't good, even though I, that's like my obsession. <laughs> most comedy records are just yeah. shit. <laughs> it's well, it's the, unfortunate, but but it's like a lot of comedy. You have to. Um... A, a big reason why we laugh at things is recognition. Sure. Yep. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure a million people you've spoken to have said this, but if you take something mid-series from uh, or mid-run um, uh, from some amazing comedy act or sitcoms, mm-hmm. uh, you know, oeuvre, um, and the audience are screaming with laughter mm-hmm. at it, and if you were to watch that as your first example of them you're likely not to find it funny right but what you're hearing there is the laughter uh, a load of you know recognition of what they do and it is that thing again they're gonna do the thing again but if you've never heard if you haven't heard it 50 times before then you don't find it funny and probably when you first heard it you didn't find it funny i mean it's really interesting in inverted commas watching the first episode of monty python there's not a lot of laughter Right. They weren't right. getting it. There's a well-beloved sitcom in this country from the 70s called The Good Life. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard of that? Ooh. About, about people... It's probably oh, been it, turned into an American sitcom at some point, but I don't know. 
I bet it has. Um, it's about some people. It was in the seventies, <clears throat> as I say, and it's about some people who decide to live a life of self-sufficiency. So mm-hmm. they give up the rat race and they're just living in their suburban house and they turn the garden into a place where they have pigs and they grow stuff. And and it became. You listened to you know the second or third series, however many series it went to. Uh, it made a star of an actress called uh, Penelope Keith. I don't know whether you've heard of her, uh, who sort of played so. the sort of posh neighbour next door, who who was. Um, a social climber, but uh, delightful, but had no real sense of humour. So they'd make uh-huh. fun of her. And she'd go, I don't know why that's funny. Um, but you listen to one of the, or you watch one of the later episodes, and the audience are going crazy. You watch the first episode, and it's got all those jokes in it. And coming to it as someone who loves it, you watch it, and you still laugh. And then you notice the the TV audience is not laughing. They're yeah. not getting any of the jokes. <laughs> so it is to do with recognition, I think. And so in a way, and in a way, I think when I first listened to Best of Sellers as a teenager, I kind of thought, what is this? (laughs) But then it became my special thing that I, I don't think I ever played it to anyone. I just listened to it myself Mm -hmm. and I would listen to it over and over again. And I, I, I grew to find it funny because Mm -hmm. it was, you know, oh, they're cracking that joke again. Of course they are, Nick. It's the same track you've listened to 50 (laughs) times. But yeah, I sort of accidentally taught myself to, to find it hilarious yeah no i mean that's perfectly legitimate and it's one of those things where i think we, we also talk a lot about well i never specifically ask anybody hey what's the first time you realized that you could be funny or something was funny because i usually find those questions trite but when it is brought up it's usually interesting because so often the stuff that i know i laughed at as a kid i was only laughing at because my parents were already laughing at oh oh cue now i know to laugh and that's how you learn what comedy is to begin with so it's all very kind of false on its face and at the same time what you're talking about is this kind of like repetitive uh comfort that you you, this comfort that you get with it and eventually it becomes its own thing and i think it's uh kind of becomes weirdly legitimate at that point i know it's strange to to laugh at something you've heard a thousand times. I've done it, still do it. You know, I mean, uh, especially if it's good comedy music or some of the Python records or what have you. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's this weird thing that sounds and seems false, but there's this comfort level to it that you can't really deny. I I saw some investigation on television where they were trying to work out what really was the purpose of laughter. And the best Mm -hmm. explanation they could come up with, it was like the human equivalent of grooming, of, of, Mm -hmm. you know, when apes groom each other. Yeah. And pick off the fleas and what have you. Yeah. It's it's our version of that. We all chuckle and laugh at the same thing. And you saying taking cues from your parents, mm-hmm. that's exactly that's why they put um laughter trap that's why they have live 100%. audiences. Because yeah. when you can hear an audience laughing, then you just join in. We are, in spite of all our selfishness and appallingness, we are social animals and we will largely follow what other people do. You know, mm-hmm. if we're all la- if we're all laughing together, we'll we'll do it. You very rarely have a situation. Of course, it does happen mm-hmm. where someone is listening to something on their own with headphones on, and there are other people in the room who aren't experiencing it, and that person's laughing a lot. But right. I would suggest that part of the reason they're laughing is because they know other people are there. That's not to say what they're doing is false. Sure. Yeah, it's no, just the context in. And an extreme version of this is quite. My my wife is not a person who, who laughs easily. Mm-hmm. I do laugh easily. I'm I'm always on the verge of a chuckle, you know, <laughs> and it's this kind of nervous energy in me. But when I've seen something on television that I think is hilarious and I show it to her and she doesn't laugh, it makes it even funnier for me <laughs> to see her sitting there kind of going, "What? why is that funny? And I, ju- I just, you know, it just makes me... 
I have one. I did win her around <clears> on <throat> Count Arthur Strong. Did, have you ever seen any of that? Count Wait Arthur Strong. See, everything you're bringing up is stuff that's familiar, and I know I've seen it, but I've never <laughs> seen, heard of it, but not seen it. I got her to laugh at it when I said to her, "He's he's just like your father," and and now uh -huh. she thinks it's funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you had to walk her through it and get it get it at a certain angle, and then she yeah, was, I mean, yeah. even now she wouldn't watch a whole episode, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, and of course, Count Arthur Strong did in fact start on radio um, mm -hmm. with um, Graham Duff. Mm -hmm. who wrote Nebulous as the mm -hmm. script editor. So okay. there's there's a little connection with everything I've, I've been talking about. But comedy is massively important to me. And yeah. I think it's because of the grooming thing that sort of, it bonds people, comedy, yeah. doesn't it? Silliness is vital. I um, mean, uh, one of the, the, the reasons I started this show, and I apologize to anybody who has heard this a million times, is that there there are a couple records that m my best friend and I became bonded over and became best friends over. And I kind of just mm. wanted, I always like to ask, you know, did you ever make friends over comedy? Do you, are there any records or any comedy experiences you made friends over? I'm, uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but yes, I, uh, absolutely. I know I've bonded with people over comedy stuff yeah. and they've become important people in my lives because of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You don't have to I have an example. Yeah, yeah I, I can't. I can't. That's really no. It's really interesting. I, I can. I have that feeling that that's happened quite a lot in my yeah. life. I know that there was. Um, you know, when I was in my teens, I remember my next door neighbour was into comedy, and we used to do comedy sketches on. And he was a couple of years older than me, mm -hmm. so I very much looked up to him. And we used to do comedy sketches and put them onto cassette. Yes. And he was musically talented, so there'd be a bit of guitar music oh in there. God. And we do and we do sends up sends up send ups of uh, news programs you know all that kind of monty python stuff yeah so and i think we really bonded over the comedy thing but we were also very very serious about it mm -hmm. you know it's I love uh, that. Uh, and that's the funny thing you have to be uh, when i was directing nebulous we used to spend a lot of time sort of burrowing down to what was funny and a lot mm -hmm. of the time we wouldn't be laughing at all but my goodness when we found something funny it was really difficult to get a good take because everyone was laughing so much. And when you're rushing to a, a post-production deadline, it's three o'clock in the morning, you're trying to edit something and you've got to the seventh take and still Mark Gatiss is laughing. You don't find it so funny anymore. You just think, can you just do it properly so I can finish this scene? You know. But that's the joy of working on comedy. There's a lot of seriousness about it, but the reward is that huge release of laughter. For sure. But I think one of the reasons comedy is so important to me is because I I've got a very thin skin about the the um, the harshness of life, mm -hmm. and I actually feel on the brink of depression most of the time. So it's really mm -hmm. important to me to sort of make things funny, to see the silly side of things. You know, I've really said. I've said to my boss at Big Finish, I said, the reason I make so many jokes is because I'm actually a really serious person. Mm -hmm. I'm really serious about everything. And I just, so I have to laugh to get through that. Mm -hmm. You can hear it in my voice. There's a sort of nervous chuckle going on. You know? Sure. I mean, which, I mean, I wasn't going to go here this, this uh, already, but Do it. that does lend <laughs> itself to the Daleks a bit because they are <laughs> yes. so demented. Now, yes. here's the thing. I, as you might imagine, I, you know, I might have grown up with Python, but I, I'm, I did not grow up with Doctor Who. My best friend did. Uh, you know, that was something he was more familiar with than I was. Right. right. Um, I, I already know well enough that you were something of a Doctor Who fan, but I, I, mm -hmm. I want to know. You, you've already <laughs> mimicked so well so many of the sellers' voices. I want to know 
you can't grow well i don't know did you grow up do, can you can't do a dalek voice without a synthesizer in front of you however was this a thing that you ever i don't know how the hell do you yes. prepare to do this yeah, yeah, of course. I was, I was, obs- the, the, I was very preoccupied by the voice of the Daleks when I, I, I remember that being really important to me when I was a kid. And I would try and impersonate it on um, microphones and wonder why it didn't sound quite right. I mean, you can't talk like this, uh, you know. And you think that sounds a bit like a Dalek, but there's something missing, you know. Yeah. And then later yeah. on, you find it's a thing called a ring modulator, which fiddles yeah. around with your voice a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was that was one of the most pleasurable points in my life when finally found a weird electronics shop in Southampton where some gentleman who smoked funny smelling cigarettes um <laughs> said yeah hey man yeah we we got a uh, we got a sort of uh, circuit diagram of a ring modulator yeah we can do that come back in a week's time so we came back in a week's time and they had this box with wires hanging out of it and they connected a microphone up to it and I spoke into it and suddenly it sounded like a Dalek, and That's that amazing. is. And I started doing, you know, attention survivors of London. This is your final warning. Leave your hiding places. Show yourselves in the streets. Work is needed of you. But the Dalek. And I just was doing all this through this ring modulator. I thought, oh my god, I sound like a Dalek. I'm so happy. <laughs> they should pull they, out a quote. <laughs> right? You know. And I noticed, I think when I watched a video of you doing it, do you, do you close off your nasal cavity when you're doing it? You're, there's something you're doing <laughs> no. to the voice. There's something you're doing no. to the voice, and I can't hear, I don't know what it is, but it obviously doesn't, even the voice you just did entirely, totally, you know, uh, smacked of, of a Dalek without without the ring modulator. But yeah, okay, yeah. I'm just trying to figure out what you're doing, and I love it. I don't know. I'm I'm being, I'm being a Dalek. You're just being That's a Dalek, I'm yeah. Just, I just, yeah, it just... It just happens, you know, just through listening for so many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you sort of have to yeah, believe that it's that it's true while you're doing it. Like all acting, you of course you it, it would be psychosis if you didn't if you <laughs> if you lost track of it and actually thought you were a Dalek. But that's that's the thing with acting. You have to you have to believe enough to be able to do it and not be affected by what else is going on. I mean, I have to do that anyway when I'm on the TV show because sure. often I'm sitting with a bunch of people who aren't actors because I'm away from the set. Sure. And the set is like 100 yards or metres over there um, behind walls. They're hearing my voice on a speaker and suddenly I have to just stand up and do a Dalek voice in front of a lot of people who don't even know I'm the voice of the Daleks. You know, they're visiting the set with their relations or something and suddenly this madman stands up with headphones on and all they can hear is me just talking like that they can't hear the effect <laughs> right. the effect is echoing behind a wall somewhere and they're and you know you can imagine they're thinking is someone gonna call security to get rid of him he's just he's just said he wanted to kill everyone <laughs> I thought this guy was a script supervisor. And he exactly. Up and just well, saying. I could be. They could, I think, you know, some people, you know, think I'm one of the sound men. You know. Right. I did have one of the actors come up to me once. He said, so are you an actor? I said, no, I'm the janitor. What, what, what do you think I am? And he went, all right, all right. I didn't mean to offend you. I thought, well, are you an actor? You're playing a part as well, aren't you? <laughs> Why did it never occur to me that that voice is done live? Why that now that you tell me that right I'm like oh right that makes perfect sense it is mostly done live but yeah. it's mostly done live because Russell T Davis is a fan of old Doctor Who and that's how they mm-hmm. used to do it in the old days sure sure um, but uh, there's no reason to do it live mm-hmm. except that it's nice for the other actors because they yeah. get to they get to hear it and the lights flash at the same time of me speaking and all that kind of nonsense you know the lights on the Daleks doom mm-hmm. um, so. Uh, 
yeah, it's a kind of David Tennant always used to say the brilliant thing about the Daleks is that they he did so much acting with silver balls on sticks or whatever, you know, <laughs> that they were going to add in later with CG to actually be able to see a Dalek move with a flashing light and hear it talk. It was like the most complete creation of a monster he could act with, really. Yeah. So it's a fun thing to do. I'm, you know, I, I know there have been some first assistant directors who sort of look at me and think, why is this guy here? Can't this just be done later? Do we have to suffer this screaming and shouting? It's much better. Everyone, everyone who knows about the Daleks, which is most people in the UK, sure, they, they get a tingle when they hear that voice. Yeah. I mean, people, people who have no cultural connection with it don't. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, I've told this story often, but at the first read-through with Christopher Eccleston, you know, when I did the first Dalek voice, mm-hmm. and, and Chris spoke to me about this the other day because I've been directing him for Big Finish, we're doing mm-hmm. Ninth Doctor Adventures, you know, he said it was an amazing moment when suddenly he could hear me speaking as a Dalek and he was thinking, what is going on? He stopped <laughs> in his tracks. He, got, he was so taken aback by it. But I remember as the entire room very generously burst into spontaneous applause and cheering for me, I looked around the room like the good old pro to look at my audience. And there was one woman sitting there who, uh, who I don't know whether you remember the episode, but she played Van Staten's assistant, mm-hmm. executive assistant, very tall, beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember her name or her <laughs> character's name. But anyway, she was very nice. Um, but she, was, she wasn't um, clapping and she was looking around uh, everyone else like like you know like she walked into a nazi party rally and everyone was <laughs> seek heiling and she was thinking what am i doing here you know i these people are insane you know and she had never had any experience of doctor who she had never seen it so to her it meant nothing yeah so interesting <laughs> didn't give her a tingle <laughs> There was an incident on set where they, um, where the Dalek was pinning the uh, Van Staten, the American sort of billionaire who got the Dalek and put it in a cage, mm-hmm. and it was confronting him. And she was in the background as it was moving towards him across screen, and he was one side, and she was in the background between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And on the first take, she just looked, and then the director came on and said, "Oh, can you can you look scared?" <laughs> and she pointed out and said, "What of that?" <laughs> At which point the director said, it's been killing people. And she went, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then she remembered her, you know, acting. Yes, even though it looks and sounds ridiculous, I will think of it as a psychopath and then I'll be able to react to it properly. I think once you're acclimated to what they mean, um, it does sort of generate in you. Again, you have to become a fan. And it was, I'm a latter day fan, of course. But uh, I don't know. I, I think that's why when you talk about you know, the, your approach to life at sort of trying to laugh your way out of the darkness. Yes. And then you play the Daleks, which seem to be the exact opposite. They're laughing their way just straight into oblivion and they love it. It's, very, it's you know, and they're not laughing, but there is glee in their. Yes, you know, there's a real mania, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yes. there's the word. Thank you. And it yeah. is, yeah. There's, it's very cathartic that like it's you know lance thank you it's it's sort of <laughs> lancing the boil of nastiness to be able to scream and shout like yeah. that really of course yeah it's i good. can't i can't imagine honestly if if i were on a set with a a, a trash can screaming at me in that voice though <laughs> it's that voice that would i feel like just it it is frightening genuinely frightening and, and it, uh, it takes a lot of commitment, you know. Um, uh, yeah. David Tennant had a go on set once uh, doing the voice. He said, "Well, can I have a go on it?" And had a, and he said, and then after he'd sort of done a little bit tentatively, he said to me, "There's 
it requires some serious hectoring, doesn't it? It's like you can't you can't do it by half measures. I've I've been on TV shows and what have you, and the presenter says, "Oh, can I ever go?" And you go, "Yeah," and then they get all nervous mm-hmm. and they go mm-hmm. all that kind of. Mm, it's like someone's asked them to sing and they <laughs> yeah. can't sing. You know yeah. what I mean? And they go, "Oh." <laughs> I mean, Prince Charles. He said um, when I met, I was introduced to him, mm-hmm. and they said, "Oh, you know, His Majesty might want to um, have a go on the ring modulator, so offer that to him." So I did, and he went, "Oh," and he took it, and clearly he'd never watched Doctor Who in his <laughs> life because he went one false move. <laughs> I thought, yeah, the Daleks are always going around saying one false move to people. You know, he probably read it in a comic book where in in his uh, you know younger years. Mm-hmm. That's probably what it is, isn't it? Yes, that's that's how the Daleks probably talk. Bless his cotton socks. He tried his best though. Sure. I mean, he could have had me executed immediately, I suppose. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you don't know if you're being executed or knighted. That's the thing. That's, that's, that's... the thing until the final swish of the sword. <laughs> oh, my. That, that, all that makes me think of is that Eddie, Eddie is our joke where uh, royal people, oh, a plumber. What on earth is that? <laughs> just, <laughs> you're a plumber. Oh, my God. Uh, that's delightful, though. I, I, I did not expect to hear uh, a Prince Charles story come out of that. There you go. Um, yeah. So out of this, okay, let's let's skip back to the record for a moment. Oh yes, yes. Do you please. have a favorite track? A, a one and only favorite track. You don't have to, but I'm curious if one is an absolute favorite. They're all. Uh, when you asked me to do it before, I just went through them all in sequence, didn't I? And I'm looking mm-hmm. at the tracks now. I mean, I suppose. Uh, it's really. I'm narrowed it down to the trumpet volunteer or Balam Gateway to the South. Uh huh. Balam Gateway to the South, I quite like the sort of send up. It's meant to be uh, the soundtrack of a film. You know, it says things Mm -hmm. like, as our cameras pass by, let us read out some of these uh, slogans, you know. Um, uh, I think, yeah, because it's the classic one, it has to be Balam Gateway to the South. Yes. There you go. It's brilliant. No, it's perfect. Have you ever heard in a, this is another thing people have heard me bring up a lot, but anytime Peter Sellers comes up, there, he, when he was in Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah. There was a little promotional video where he was right. speaking as himself, and they asked him, oh, you're, you're very good with accents, but there's some American. You're very good with accents, Mr. Sellers. Could you give us a sampling, something like that? And then he does every accent in the UK, but he's like, and then we go down to here and up here, and, and he's doing like every accent wow. in this cyclical, like, and, and we're talking, you know, you know, every small little accent that he could think of, you know. Oh, I haven't heard that, no. I, I will have to hunt it down because I keep bringing it up and people haven't heard it and I need to send it to people. It's It must be on beautiful. YouTube, You know, it? it's a good point. It probably is. I'll have to hunt that down because it's yeah. it's brilliant to listen to. And it's a nice oh, yeah. primer. If you're not familiar with English ac- or, or UK accents, I feel like it's a nice primer for people. Yeah. Is it quite, what did you think when you first heard that? Were you quite startled? Yeah, because, you know, even as a kid, you know, uh, as a person who my, my mother uh, threw as much English stuff as she could at me, there's still so many accents you're not going to... She was obsessed because I was born there, but we, we moved away after about a year and a half. And, oh, right. Uh, where were you born? Uh, Swindon. Um, Swindon. So. Oh, not a million miles from where <laughs> I am a, in Dorset. Okay, yeah, but there we yeah. are. Yeah, we, Swindon, they, they speak a bit like that in Swindon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I'm sure that I'm sure that was in there somewhere in his range of, <laughs> range of voices. And I, I don't think it the, the a lot of these are accents that don't get as much exposure over here. No, especially if you go back to an, the earlier part of the 20th century, where 
a lot of English people were just being played by Americans who yeah. thought they were doing English accents. Well, you know, we did the same in this country with American accents. Sure. Sure. People who come in and say, yeah, I'm an American, and they speak in that sort of way, and they didn't do any, you know, it's just, oh, so, but you see shows in the 60s, the 70s, even, you know, where people are behaving like that. I will say Michael Palin might be my favorite Python of them all, but his American accent is atrocious, and I love it. I love it. There's something to me very charming about it. Um, a lot of people love Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange. I love him. think he's a great actor. The Doctor Strange accent, not great. But that's okay. It's okay. It's just the hard R. And I get it. The hard R is very hard to get around. Yeah, because, like, R. just having to all of a sudden, you know, the, the, to overemphasize, it's whatever. It's a long, boring thing to talk no, about. No, that's, that's what accents. we English do when we do an American accent. We, yeah. we, we really go for the R. Very you know, much yeah, so. And I yeah. love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> but I have know? had people come up to me and say, you know, it's ridiculous. American people just don't speak like that. <laughs> sure, and I, sure. think, I are... felt like I could just record that and play it back to you and say, well, you just did <laughs> you that. You just did <laughs> You know, there are some Midwest accents that I feel like kind of come in there. Yeah, there's some there are some American accents that kind of almost fit perfectly into that. Into that. Yeah, well, my friend Shelley Dean, who's on the Benji and Nick show with us mm-hmm. when we review cult TV every week. Um, uh, look, look for it on, you know, all your favorite. I'm going to uh, subscribe right after. On, yeah, do it. Do it. Um, we've also got a Patreon page, but I'm not expecting you to have to pay. But you can you can you can listen to it for free, folks. Uh, Shelley is she has got what I consider, you know, to me, sounds like what I expect of an American accent. Okay, I can't even remember exactly where she lives now. It's not a million miles from New York, but she's mm-hmm. but she has been she's lived in different places. She lived in California for quite a while as well. So she's got a fusion of the, the many uh, more well known American accents. Sure. No southern state stuff, but for example, the sort of main accent really flummoxes the English because that's not what we expect of an oh, American no. accent at all. I mean, they Us don't either. do the the dark R, do they? They don't Mm-mm. do that in Maine. Uh, so it sounds weird. The two weirdest accents, or the two most difficult accents, I shouldn't say weird because it sounds like I'm making a judgment. Uh, <laughs> accents in the UK mm-hmm. are really the Newcastle accent, the Geordie mm-hmm. accent, yep. and the Norfolk accent as well. The Norfolk accent, which is, I wouldn't even attempt to do that. Really? It's so it's a rural accent, but it doesn't have the R sound in it. And the Geordie one is so, you know, if you do Geordie badly, you either go Indian or, or Welsh and bad okay. versions of both of those. You okay, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Jamaican as well. It's a, you can go, you could just take a slight turn to the right and suddenly you're you're doing a bad send up of a Jamaican accent. It's sure, it's, sure. So, it's such a, you know, it's a tightrope of embarrassment. I'm going to have to look up the Norfolk accent. I, I'm sure yeah. I've heard it, but wouldn't have been able to spot what the hell it was. That's interesting. No, no, you, you no, absolutely. I can't wait to see this uh, or hear this Peter Sellers uh, accent tour that's one of the things uh, we we say as actors and directors as a joke when someone can't get the accent right you say yeah seems to me like you're doing a bit of a national tour there <laughs> sort of <laughs> skipping from accent to accent uh-huh. and that's what i think most english people do when they do an american accent they do a sort of national tour of america in every sentence that's what i do when i do an english accent now uh, you okay. know unless unless i'm mimicking something specifically like i, I did a stage show of shawn of the dead well guess what i had wow. a whole movie to all I just did was Simon Pegg. That's and if you do that, you've got a guideline. Don't yeah. swerve in your. Whereas my my friend who was playing, 
Um, oh my goodness, uh, uh, Dylan. Uh, oh my god, my brain has fried. The Irish gentleman in the film. Yeah, I know. Yeah, now yeah. I can't remember his name. Yeah, but I know exactly. Uh, my who you mean. my friend played him, and he was Irish for about an eighth of the show. The rest of it was <laughs> so many other things, and it was it's delightful. It's a fun experiment. The audience loved it. They're like, "That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard," and yet the commitment to the acting was there. So you know, was this it. all horribly unofficial? This this show. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called a drinking game. So we do this show where we drink and the audience drinks, and we do a stage reading. And originally it was just going to be us in our clothes, but it's since become a full production where we have costumes and props. And uh, wow. I had my Shaun of the Dead shirt ready to go. My Edgar Wright approved, by the way, Shaun of the Dead outfit. Really? Ready to go. Yes. He did see How it did once. He, and did... he, he, we went to a midnight showing and I, I obviously dressed up like an ass and he said, oh, that's, that's the best one I've seen because I had the full, uh, I had the, I made the 4E electric uh, little tag. I'm a nerd. You know, we're, we're discussing nerd things on this show. And uh, yeah, I was ready to go. It, it is a great movie, isn't it? That's so good. Oh, and I've since done Hot Fuzz, actually. I did Hot Fuzz in oh, Minneapolis. Yeah. And the that's another great movie. They're, those three comedy <laughs> yeah. movies they've yeah. done, yeah. I think they're all good. And I think, uh, was it yeah. World's End or The World's mm-hmm. End? Or what was yeah, it? The World's End. Cool. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's very underrated. Uh, I think it's, it's one of those films that um, when you first watch it, um, the first half you think well, what, what is this going on it's just some obnoxious git and I don't yeah. like I mean he's uh, the character he plays when he when he meets all his mates and he goes look at these and uses yeah. a four letter word beginning uh-huh. with C and you just think wow is that a bit much but once you've seen the second half mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you watch the movie again the first half is brilliant it's yeah. really brilliant having really having is. been informed by the second half I thought it's great yeah I, yeah I, I mean I, there's no wonder to me that that's his his favorite character to play and i (laughs) i i love it and it's i don't know it's 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 he's about 10 years older than i am so it's it's uh you know watching it 10 years back every time i'm like oh yeah i kind of see where he was i can kind of relate to the points where he was in his life it's yeah it it is underrated i think it's brilliant um speaking of things from childhood because that movie's all about a a guy with uh, arrested development i'd like (laughs) to know do those tapes still exist of you and your friend doing sketches together do they exist somewhere I, I, they must do. Yeah, I've got a few ideas where they might be. Thinking mm-hmm. about it now, yeah. Whenever this comes up on the show, I'm just always trying to convince someone to please digitize them, <laughs> do something with them, because I, I have a whole podcast that's all about that. My best friend and I and our sketches, and I always want to know. It's embarrassing. I know they're embarrassing to listen back to. But yeah, <laughs> they really. It sounds are. like yeah. you guys put some effort into them, and that's why I just desperately want to hear them. I remember one of the sketches is where I play someone. Again, it's totally you know, unacceptable now. Where sure, I play sure. someone who who goes in to see a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. uh, and and I start describing a strange dream I have, and I, I played the part really badly. And I and it gets the dream gets more more outrageous than the psychiatrist going, mm-hmm, yeah, okay. Well, um, you're obviously completely mad, so I'm going to give you a lethal injection. Uh, what? <laughs> And I'm going, no, 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 please. And he, said, and he says, well, are you going to behave? Yes. All right, get out of my okay. office then. And that's the end of it. It's just sort of... <laughs> yeah. The, the, I mean, the that's how you that, write sketches as a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 uh, the basic premise of the uh, sketch is that people with mental illness are making it up, which, uh-huh. which is um, not entirely a sympathetic point of view, is it? No, really? no. But it is. <laughs> that is how you learn satire as a child, though, is, is, is you know... You know, it's interesting is like, I feel like there are worse places to test your boundary than boundaries than with comedy, especially if it's yeah. done in this tightly contained little cassette tape that no one ever has to hear again. Yes. You know, it's like, yeah, we made our mistakes there. Nobody heard it. Good to go. I you think know. it was called, um, 
I'm just remembering things right now. I think it was actually called All About Squirrels. <laughs> and there's only one there's only one sketch that mentions squirrels. Of course. Where where I'm interviewing this professor mm-hmm. and uh, and I said and I said so you have some I oh, know he's the one who's doing the silly acts. I said so you have some um, uh, interesting theories about uh, squirrels. Uh, no, I don't. Oh, can you tell me something interesting about squirrels? He says they all fly north in the winter time. I say is that true? And he goes, no, but it's interesting. <laughs> That's, I think that's the best line from the whole thing. It's so it gives good. you an idea of the quality. <laughs> I'm really surprised I remembered that. Uh, I haven't recalled that for some time. Um, okay, Thank this you for laughing. A, uh, I thought it was great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I'm an idiot. Who knows? You know, it's well, fine. I hope you are. It's the best way to be. <laughs> Do you, uh, first of all, this has been a delight. Thank you for doing the Thank show. You. I've enjoyed um, please it. come back anytime. We can talk. Okay. On. I don't give a damn. That'll be fine. <laughs> um, uh, I like to ask people towards the end of the show, uh, recommend this album to somebody who doesn't know Peter Sellers as anything other than maybe a movie star. If they even know, you know, there's probably a generation who has no idea who he is. Yeah. It's a tour de force of character acting. It's one voice playing all the parts and there's singing, and there's brilliant music. Uh, it's, and if I hadn't told you it's just one person, you wouldn't, you wouldn't mm-hmm. know, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, it's, yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it's a really beautifully crafted bit of classy work, actually, from a, a, you know, a brilliant actor showing his comedy skills. And I'm going to say, honestly, for 1950, I just, it's now just occurring to me, 1958 is a, a, around the same time comedy albums were starting to be a big hit thing over here too, but they're not any sketch. First of all, if it's all improv, there's not really any improv albums that came out around the same time. And there's also not that many thoroughly produced comedy albums. There wouldn't be for a while after this. So it's, it's an example of at least all those three things. So yeah, yeah give, give it a listen. I'd love to know how it was made, how much they did play around with the script. Because a lot of it does sound improvised, doesn't it? There are sections yeah. where he's sort of playing around with it a bit. Yeah. I'm going to have to do some digging. I will probably yeah, find get zero out. answers. Let me know. Gonna, I will. I will. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell people where they can find you? And uh, if you've got anything coming up that they should check out or regular that they should check out. Well, I think uh, the way to find me is uh, at bigfinish.com, which is where I do most of my work, which is, you know, Doctor Who audio, also The Prisoner and Space 1999, uh, various things like that. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, I did a, a great adaptation of uh, The War of the Worlds, which for um, copyright reasons, we had to call The Martian Invasion of Earth. Um, but um, And I won an, won an award for that. I won an audio Amazing. award. Amazing. Yeah. Um, but uh, really, I'd love you to join in with us at um, The Benji and Nick Show, um, which is a weekly podcast, comes out uh, every Sunday. Uh, if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you can get it a week in advance. And, and there are all sorts of extra things like an after party. And we do um, monthly recipes, uh, weekly recipes, actually, oh and goodness. a monthly extra commentary. And in the Benji and Nick show, we either uh, we set at the end of every podcast, we mention some obscure or well-known or whatever TV show. 
mm-hmm. and we set ourselves the task of watching an episode of it before the next podcast and then we discuss it or we actually do a commentary so you can line up your dvd or streaming service and watch it with us it. and listen to our commentary or we sometimes just do a thing saying what have we all been watching recently and benji mm-hmm. shelley and i just do a little chat about um and we and you know and we it's it's very knockabout Although occasionally sure. we get ridiculously serious, and I think that makes it even funnier because <laughs> we're taking ourselves far too seriously. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that so much. That's very good. I, uh, I, it was occurring to me recently. I want to do some. I, there's no way to do this in any interesting way, but I would love to do something comparing the first, maybe the first and last episodes of the American sitcom All in the Family and its progenitor. <laughs> which was uh, Till Death Us Do Part. I would like to do something where I listen, watch them both. But I don't know if that show is even available. I have a record of it. I have the record they released of two episodes. Yeah, but maybe I just have to compare the record to it. A couple of visual episodes. That'd be weird, though. What's the name of the character in All in the Family? Was it Archie? Archie Bunker. Bunker, because it was Mm -hmm. Alf Garnet in ours, Mm -hmm. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the unfortunate I, thing about Till Death is Two Part, of course, is that the main characters are racist, but they were sure. lampooning racism. But most yeah. people found it funny because they agreed they thought his racist insults were funny. Yeah, so, well, I, I think All in the Family walked that line, too, where if yeah. you were the part of the audience who got what they were doing, you're like, this show's great. And if you're part of the audience who's fucking ignorant as hell, you're like, yeah, this show's great for the wrong yeah, exactly. reasons. Yeah, it's, it's a win-win. <laughs> It's a very complicated situation. Um, thank you again very, very, Pleasure. very much for doing this show. Um, and thank you all for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Undress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah! <laughs> <laughs>